0: Let's pray. Father, as we uh, come today, we have so many different things uh, in our hearts. We have many things to thank you for. We look at our world, um, and even in lives that are hard, we find so many things to rejoice in. We thank you for rain, and we thank you for jobs, and we thank you that you have never let us down. We have families that we thank you for, and we have so many things. And so we pray that today our hearts would be Uh, moved away from all of our distractions and instead that we lord would thank you that we would realize that you are behind every good gift in our lives god we are tempted so many times to put our trust in other people and so as we as we worship we pray that today that you would help us to not trust any in um, in people whether it's people in our lives uh, whether it's people in our, our jobs, whether it's people in our world, in our culture, in government. God, we pray that we would not put our trust in people depending on them to keep us safe, to keep for them to uh, provide for us. But instead, I pray that this morning would be a time for us to redirect uh, our hearts to the fact that you are the prince and the king of all the earth. And you are the one who promises to care for us. Uh, and so we pray that today's worship service will be a time for us to do that. God, we pray that this week you remind us that whether it's in our case or somebody else's case, you are the God who defends the fatherless and the widow. You are the God who looks on uh, the orphan. You are the one who looks on the outsider and the sojourner, and you are the one who cares for them. And so we pray, Lord, today for those uh, in our church who find themselves in those situations, fatherless, widow, those who are estranged from family, those who are wandering and wondering what the future is going to hold. We pray that today we would be, uh, that our hearts would be redirected to the fact that you love people just like us. Not those who have it all together, but those who come empty, those who come unprotected, those who wonder where, uh, who's going to watch out for us. God, I pray that this worship service would would remind us of the, the steady hand of God in all things, the steady hand of God in our lives and in our hearts. God, we pray today that you would uh, care for those in our church who can't be with us because they're sick. We've had so many over the last years who have had to be away, whether it's cancer or another long-term illness. We pray, Lord, that you would sustain them with strength. We know that it, it has to be hard in the middle of the night to wonder how long it will go on. So we pray today for comfort for them. God, we pray for those who carry unseen wounds, unseen fears, unseen attacks, unseen depression and despair. We pray today, Lord, that you would show yourself mighty in our church. We know that they affect uh, us even if we don't know the specifics. And so we pray, Lord, for your, your care and your comfort and your strength in these situations. And we pray for those who come today and who need wisdom. Who don't know how to make the right decision. They don't know what's going to come next. They don't know what comes after the ending of whatever it is in their lives. And so we pray, your word says, if you need and lack wisdom, to ask for it. And so we ask for wisdom for those in our church that we don't walk in our own strength and in our own knowledge, that we don't just, we don't direct our own lives, Lord, but that we would walk in your wisdom. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Live in a fractured world. If you look around, it seems that disunity and division is the normal thing. I don't I mean, I, I only have my 38 years to go by, but as I talk to you guys, as I look at the news, as I hear stories of things that are going on, we live in a world where it's normal for people, for families, for political parties for clubs, for groups, for civic organizations to be divided, fractured, going their own way. One of the things I've I've learned is that sometimes I, I go to a funeral. That happened a while back. I went to a funeral. I wasn't doing it myself. But it was an incredible service. And I was like, I don't know these people, so it sounds great. And then come to find out at the end of it, like with many families, It was a broken, divided family behind the scenes. We look wherever we go in life, whether it's your workplace, your extended family, a town, a county, a country, the world. We live in a world where it's normal to be divided, to go our own way. And so we come today and we go, what does God have to say about unity? What does God have to say about this fractured world that we live in? You and I have our own remedies to fix it. You know, somebody says, hey, if we just didn't live in our own media bubbles and we all got out of those, maybe if we just knew each other, that would be better. Maybe if this happened or maybe if this happened, then we could fix it. But if we're honest, when it gets down to the level of, wait, our families or our extended families are uh, disjointed and disconnected, it's not Facebook's fault that our family is hurting and hurting one another. It's not the media's fault that my family is this way. So what does God's word have to say about the fact that we live in a world where everybody goes their own way and that's normal? Today we're going to be looking in the book of Philippians chapter one. We're going to be looking at this idea of we live in a fractured world, we despair about it, we don't want it to be the way that it is, but it's also what's been normal for hundreds if not thousands of years. It's what happens in our families it's what happens in our towns. What does God have to say to, that could speak into this and transform that? Go ahead and turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. We're going to be today be looking at verses 3 to 11. Here in our series, Every Day Matters. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen. Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 to 11. Paul, writing to the Christians in Philippi, says, I thank my God every time I remember you. God, as we open your word, I know my own tendency to want to go my own way and do my own thing. It's easier because I'm right. It's That's the default of our hearts. That's the default for our families. It's de- that's the default for churches. That's the default for our world. And so I pray that your word would cause us to, to treasure something different like you do. In Jesus' name, amen. These verses, verses 3 to 11, calls to us, to treasure and pursue God-given fellowship. The, your translation might use the word partnership. Those words are because there's something going on. We're going to unpack that as we go. But this, these verses tell us this is not just a throwaway thing. Paul would take what's normal in a letter and transform it. Paul could take the uh, the address on the envelope and he'd like fill it with the gospel. And here he takes what's normal, which is to like thank somebody and to like say this is what I'm praying for you. And but he like fills it with meaning. And what he calls to us today is to treasure and pursue. God given fellowship. I want to show you in these in these verses the two two uh, two ways that we that we apply this. Two ways that we apply this. The, first, the passage calls us to treasure fellowship as a God given gift. Treasure fellowship as a God given gift. Verses three to eight is where uh, Paul says, this is what I'm so thankful for. And this becomes one of the themes of his letter. What I want you to notice is he says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. And this is where he tells them why. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Your translation might use the word fellowship. There are other times where the same word is used in the New Testament, and we just say this is fellowship. But this fellowship, this partnership, is not the fellowship of a potluck, as great as those can be. It's not the the fellowship of a cookout. It's not simply the fellowship of uh, of of a community group or a Sunday school class that enjoys being together. Here he says, I thank God because of your partnership in the gospel. Not just this is a fellowship that we have, not because we look the same, because we like the same food, because we spend our time together, because we have the same hobbies, we have a fellowship, Paul says, that is around the gospel. Remember, as he writes to the uh, Christians in Philippi, Philippi is a, would be what's in modern day Greece, but it's a, a retirement town for ex-soldiers. Paul is a Hebrew, and he's writing to a group that included a rich merchant woman, lit He's writing to a group that probably included the little girl that he uh, cast a demon out of. It included the Philippian jailer who almost killed himself and his family, or he almost killed himself, but the Philippian jailer and his family are are who he's writing to. As he says, I thank God that we have fellowship. I mean, imagine a little demon-possessed girl and a rich merchant woman and the Hebrew of Hebrews and a Philippian jailer and all of these guys, and he says, we have fellowship. But it's not just the fellowship because we we are somehow similar. It's that there is a, a fellowship or a partnership in the gospel, he says, from the first day until now. He says, and, but, and, but then he explains like why. Like where did this, this kind of God, this, this fellowship come from? He says, what is it, where does this partnership come from? He, and he says, This is a fellowship and a partnership that is God-given. Nobody would trace out, here's how the church can be united. If we just do this, and if we just do this, and if we just reach these people, and if we just do these things. He says, when I think about my fellowship with you guys, this has to be something that God has done. And he's like, I can have confidence that this fellowship is real and that it's special. Only God could have done this, and then he says, and I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Christ. God began it, so it's a God-given gift of God working in his people and then him uniting them to each other. So that the church isn't a place of people that just like the same things or prefer the same traditions, but it's a group that God has called together in spite of themselves. And Paul says, we should... Paul's like, I value, I treasure, I am so thankful every time I remember you because of our fellowship in the gospel. But you and I, so I said earlier, it's not the fellowship of a potluck. It's not the fellowship of, you know, we go to ball games together. He then, in verses 7 and 8, explains what he means by this God-given fellowship or this God-given partnership in the gospel. Verses 7 or 8 are where he starts explaining. He says, it's right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart And whether I am in chains, or I'm defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul says, what does fellowship look like? It looks like you caring for me, when I get the chance to stand up in front of people and preach the gospel and defend it in court, but it also looks like you standing with me when I'm in prison and I can't go and do the ministry God's called me to do. He says, it's, it's a kind of fellowship where you, whether I have visible fruit in my ministry or not, you say, we love that guy and we're gonna support him. He says, we have a kind of fellowship where we wanna see the gospel go out, but you have demonstrated in your life a willingness to pour out and love us. You'll, we'll see later in the book of Philippians that this church sent one of their best Leaders to take a gift because they were so concerned about Paul. He was in prison. Not able to do the kind of ministry that he normally did. Not getting to travel, not getting to preach, not getting to plant churches. And, but they still loved him enough to support him in ministry. Even when there would have been other ministries, other ministers, other missionaries that could have pointed to greater visible fruit. They said, Paul, we believe in you and we love you and we're going to stick with you through thick and thin. We're going to sacrifice to be there with you. Paul says, yeah, but it's also a fellowship, a, a partnership of, of emotion. Like, I love you dearly. This is a God-given love in my heart, Paul says. I feel this way all about you all the time. God can testify how I long for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. So that the church is not a, something that Paul just prefers or that the people just prefer but it's something that God is welling up within them so that they are willing to sacrifice. Paul is like, this is a God-given gift, and so we should treasure fellowship. We should treasure partnership in the gospel as a God-given gift because this comes from God. And doesn't that contrast so much with the way that we tend to live? We take partnership and fellowship for granted because we're willing to, to do away with it. We're willing to divide with somebody who does things the way we don't want to do them we're willing to divide with somebody and too easily we'll see other places in philippians where there are reasons sometimes to to divide but paul says unity when it's god-given and it's god-created and it's something that god is guaranteeing is something for us to love and to value to value it highly specifically because it came from god i have a, i don't have a ton of like trinkets from when i grew up i don't know if you guys are like my kids or your kids or grandkids were like mine. But like they get papers everywhere, right? They get crafts everywhere. I, I see somebody nodding. They get crafts everywhere. And you go, how do we, what do we do with all the crafts? How do we display them? Is, there, is this, is this uh, light that they made somewhere? Is this going to be like devastating when they don't have it anymore because I cleaned up their room and, and found its way into our trash? But there are some treasures that we like let them hold on to. Like, you know, there are some treasures that we hold on to. And on my shelf in the closet, uh, I have a few of those things from my childhood that I like, I like love. I don't ever do anything with them, but they, they're still there. And in this little box, there is a little kn- pocket knife. And it's, I think it's made of brass. When I was a kid, I thought it was gold, but I'm pretty sure it's brass. Because uh, it's, it's kind of got uh, this, uh, this kind of gold color to it. And it's got these engravings on it of Davy Crockett and of a few other things. And if you look it up online on eBay, you can buy one of these for about $35. Because it was from the 1982 World's Fair in, you know, the the big city of Knoxville, Tennessee. I didn't know that Knoxville ever had a World's Fair. We know the St. Louis one. We know the Chicago one. But this brass pocket knife, I wasn't even born in 1982, has sat... With my, my treasures, you know, I have a few tre- treasures. that This is one of them. Even though it's not super valuable, it's pretty common. People really only buy it so they can complete a collection of knives from this company and from whatever this, this series is. But this little brass pocket knife, I never use it. I never carry it. I, you know, it, it, In some sense, it doesn't mean anything to me because Knoxville doesn't mean anything to me. This knife, I'll never get rid of because my grandma gave it to me. She gave me a lot of pocket knives. Some of them, uh, many of them I broke. Some of them got lost. She gave me a wood carving set that I cut myself with and I never used again because I've been afraid of it the rest of my life. But this little pocket knife, this little brass pocket knife, it's kind of meaningless to you. You wouldn't keep it. You wouldn't save it. You wouldn't give it and say, hey, we need to pass this down. This is a treasure. I know that when I'm dead, my kids are not going to keep this Knoxville World's Fair pocket knife. It doesn't mean anything. It's not a valuable car. It's not something that uh, it would fit into their collection, but my grandma gave me this pocket knife. It doesn't take up much space, and I carry this pocket knife in my closet, wherever I go. You know It stays with my, my other special treasures. The only thing special about it is the fact that Grandma gave it to me. This passage right here in Philippians chapter one verses three to eight, says, "True fellowship." Is incredibly valuable because God makes it and God gives it. And He says we should begin to wrap, it's not just a a means to an end, but where we find fellowship around the gospel, it is a gift that is God given, and we should treasure it as something incredibly valuable. We shouldn't throw it away, we shouldn't get rid of it, we shouldn't ignore it. We should instead say, God, you give fellowship, and we want to value it because you're the giver of it so often we go through life valuing the things that the world around us values. We value impressiveness. We value value success. We value effectiveness. we We value objects. We value collecting and getting and gaining. But in the church, Paul says, what we should value is the gift of God giving fellowship to his people. We should value this this gift that God gives to his people. And so some of us today have to repent and say, God, I've treated it like nothing. I've treated unity and fellowship and partnership as if it doesn't matter. So God, help me think about your people as a true gift to me as a true gift to the world. God, I can't be independent. I can't be on my own. I can't do things my own way. God, help me to think about partnership around the gospel as a God-given gift that is a treasure for the world. That's the first application of this God-given fellowship. The second thing we see in verses 9 to 11. This is where Paul prays. and In verses 9 to 11, he says, now pursue fellowship as a God-given gift. This is how he says to do it. Look at yeah, verses, not verse nine. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best, and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory of God and praise of God. This is Paul's prayer, where he says, "If if fellowship and partnership is a treasure from God." then we should also pursue it as a treasure from God. Here in his prayer, he, uh, he explains, I think, what that pursuing fellowship looks like. There's really two descriptions in this. He, he says, that, and this is my prayer, and he says two prayers. He says that your love may abound more and more in knowledge. And then his second prayer is that you may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. He, he doesn't say so that your knowledge may start to grow in love, but he says that your love may grow in knowledge. And then when, when your love is growing more and more in knowledge, then you're going to be able to discern what is excellent, what is best. Paul is saying that fellowship as a God-given gift looks like love and pursuing it looks like trying to say, God, I want to love like you love and I want to grow in my knowledge so that in my entire life I'm living wisely and able to understand what it's like to live in the church. Uh, If you read 1 Corinthians 13, which is usually read at weddings, the famous love chapter that says that all the things that love is, but then it says, if I have all of the gifts, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. I regularly think about those verses because so often I value everything in the list except for love. Speaking gifts, serving gifts, you know, gifts of faith, gifts of miracles, gifts of all of these things. It is so easy to look at the list and be like, oh, I want to grow in this, I want to grow in this, I want to grow with this. And Paul says, but if you don't have love, it doesn't matter how good of a preacher you are. It doesn't matter how you serve in the church if you don't love. It doesn't matter all the things that you know if you don't have love. And here in Philippians, he says, I am praying that based on this God-given gift that you would grow and add knowledge to the love that you have. And so like pursuing God-given fellowship looks like love that grows in knowledge. And then he says in verse 10, and that you may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. These are words for like doing, like not, but they're not just, we think about pure and blameless and think about just being moral. And well, I don't have anything I need to, to repent of and pray about. I don't have anything that's weighing on my conscience that's guilty. But he's describing a way of living that doesn't put a stumbling block in front of everybody else. It's not just pure so that I'm, not, I'm thinking pure thoughts, and it's not just blameless as in I'm keep doing the right thing in my taxes, but that I'm living in such a way that I don't lay a stumbling block in front of the other people in the church or in the community. He's saying, I want you to be, be growing in purity and blamelessness so that the watching world doesn't say, is Jesus real? So that our kids don't say, can Jesus be real and dad be like this? so that our, our spouse doesn't have a stumbling block laid in front of them because of the ways that we've lived. Paul is saying what it looks like to pursue partnership or fellowship in the gospel looks like growing in love and growing in the ways that we live with each other. But ultimately, this, God is still the source of it. He's He's saying, that uh, being, may me be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness, and he returns to the theme again, that comes through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, or that comes through Jesus Christ. And so God is still the source of what he is praying for and wanting for. Paul is showing us the way and says, if God is the source of love and purity, if God is the source of fellowship that is growing, then I'm going to pray like that God is the source of that. I'm going to trust God that he does that. And so how do you and I pursue these things? How do we pursue fellowship? It looks like praying for each other and pursuing these for ourselves. If you're like me, it can be really easy to fall into a rut praying for other people. God bless them. God bless them. God heal them. God do this. God, can you help my kids with whatever the thing is that they're struggling with? But my mind can just so easily be focused in a really narrow way. But I think one of the ways that we apply this is we take these verses and begin to pray for each other, God, may her love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. God, may he live a life that is pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with your fruit. I don't know what that looks like in his house. I have my own suspicions about what, what he's struggling with, but God, can you set him free so that we have a true fellowship and partnership in the gospel. I think it looks like praying for each other in that way. But it also looks like saying what God values more than anything else in our lives is love that grows in knowledge and, and being pure and growing in purity and blamelessness for the day of Christ. So often, I, the overriding goal in my life can be beating the clock getting out the door at the right time, being in the right place at the right time. It is getting, being effective and making sure everybody else in the house is effective. Making sure that me and everybody around me are successful. And God says that Paul is a success when he's in jail because what God values in this moment is that Paul be growing in love in knowledge in purity and blamelessness. Paul can bear the fruit of righteousness in prison, Because what God's not looking for is Paul's definition of success or Joe's definition of success or your definition of success. God's definition of success is love that's growing in knowledge and a life that grows in blamelessness and purity filled with fruit of righteousness. And so this calls to us to say, no, don't adopt what the culture around us, what the world around us, and what our hearts say is success in the world is an upstanding family. It's money in the bank. It's good jobs. It's living at peace. It's getting the things that we want. No, what God wants is somebody who loves other people and is growing in it. And so this passage calls to us to per- pursue that. This week I read a, a quote from an old preacher who was doing an ordination service for uh, another minister. And uh, this was a long time ago in American history. But this is what he said about the the really the ministry that I think applies to all of us. He's speaking specifically to preachers, but I think it applies to all of us. John Shaw said, God can work by what means he will, by scandalous, domineering, self-seeking preacher, but it is not his usual way. Foxes and wolves are not nature's instrument to generate sheep. That we can go, yeah, God can use sinful people to grow his church, but that's not God's normal way. He's so powerful that he can use sinners, but God's normal way is people that love each other. Foxes and wolves are not nature's instrument to generate sheep. He, John Shaw goes on and says, "Whoever knew much good done to souls by any pastors, but such as preached and lived in the power of love, working by a clear, convincing light, and both managed by, and both managed by a holy, lively seriousness." You must bring fire to kindle fire. I think that this idea that God can use whatever he wants, but his normal way is by people who grow in love applies to all of us. Definitely it applies to preachers. Definitely it applies to pastors and deacons. But to the entire church, God's normal way for a church like Manchester Baptist Church to be all that God has called it to be is for people to humbly love each other and grow in that. It is by people who say, I don't want anything in my life to be a stumbling block. How does God grow the gospel in a family? Sure, God can redeem people from abusive dads. But that his normal way is by fathers who love their children and raise them in the Lord. Repent of their sin and grow in their ability to love. How is it that God is going to grow the church in the United States? It's by a church who says, we love God and his gift of partnership so much That we are going to pray for and work for love that grows in knowledge and purity and blamelessness. And so, this calls to us to treasure partnership and fellowship as a God given gift and then pursue fellowship and partnership as a God given gift. But I I was reading this this week and I was wondering how would Satan preach this passage? Right, we were talking about this uh, briefly in Sunday school today, but how would Satan preach a passage like this? There's, there's definitely a part of uh, what we see in the Bible that Satan often goes and says, God did not say. But there are other times where he takes people like the Pharisees and they don't set aside the law of God. They just say, okay, let's try harder. You see, the Pharisees didn't say, Jesus, you're wrong about what God wants. They just said, give us a chance to try harder. We can do it ourselves. I used to have a job, and me and my coworkers, we were kind of mocking um, the culture of the company that we worked for, but we would text each other and write on the whiteboard this as the company motto. We'd heard it from a football team. It was, nobody cares, work harder. Nobody cares, try harder. That was kind of the motto, the unofficial motto of this company. And so we turned it into a joke and we texted each other in kind of mocking encouragement. But I was thinking of that because the Pharisees' real motto was not that they can't lust, it's that why don't you try harder to not lust? The Pharisees didn't say, oh, you can steal and embezzle and do whatever you want. They just said, try harder not to steal and embezzle and do whatever you want. And Jesus is standing there and saying, "Could you? why won't you come to me for a righteousness better than you can earn on your own? And the Pharisees are like, we're going to try harder. That's a good enough method for us. You see, I think that Satan sometimes comes to us and says, no, God's law is not good. Live however you want. Do whatever you want and have no regard for God. But sometimes Satan comes and whispers to us and says, you don't need Jesus, just try harder. Just try harder. Calling to us and saying, no, don't look to to God for this. This isn't a God-given gift. The Pharisees would come to us and they would look at this passage and say, partnership is a good gift, but you don't need to go to God to get it. You can just try harder to get it. But notice that this passage over and over calls to us and says something different. The Pharisees would adopt God's goal for partnership. They would adopt God's goal, but they would use their own method. But the story of the Bible is that trying harder never pleases God. Israel needed a heart change. Satan liked the Pharisees because they claimed to be trying to please God, but they wouldn't come to the God-man Jesus so that he could change them from the inside out. They were like farmers stapling tomatoes to the vine and claiming success. So how does the gospel create true partnership? Paul points us here and tells us that only God can create true partnership in the gospel. Notice verse 6 where he says, He who began a good work in you. That's the secret, is God doing a work in you. So he says, pursue the very thing that God has already started in you. And when did he start it? When you were born again in Christ Jesus. That is the good work in you that God has begun. If you are in Christ today, then God began his good work in you. And so you have the record of the Son of God, of fellowship and partnership in the gospel. If you are in Christ, then you have been joined together with him in fellowship and partnership with the God of the universe and with his people. If you are in Christ, then today you have the power of the Holy Spirit in you. And so this passage says, continue to work out what God has already been doing and started in you, in the power of the Holy Spirit with the record of Jesus. And so he says, run in the direction that God has already started you in. But some of you today are not in Christ and your life bears the fruit of it. Some of you are not in Christ and your life looks like disunity and broken relationships and broken everything and nothing has ever been fixed. And you look at your life and you say, God, where do I start? This passage says start with Jesus. Start with Jesus. It says, repent of your sin, repent of going your own way and trying harder to please God and trust in Jesus in his life and his death and his resurrection for you. So, that you. so that God begins his good work in you and you can have Jesus' record and you can have the identity of the Son joined together with the Father and you can have the power of the Holy Spirit inside you so that you can do what all of your trying harder has never been able to do. If that's you today, trust in Jesus for the first time. Be born again and see God begin working out this God-given fellowship and partnership in you. If you have questions about that, my door is always open, but you can come and grab me at the end of the service. You can grab me in the hallway, grab me somewhere. I wanna make sure that you understand what it means to repent of sin and trust in Jesus so that you can say, God began a good work in me and I'm gonna go in that way so that you can treasure and pursue God-given fellowship with the power of God inside. I want you to imagine with me what changes. What changes for you when you begin to treasure and pursue God-given fellowship? What changes for you when you look at a world that's broken and relationships that are broken, and you go, where do I start? But you realize God is actually at work in me working out fellowship, working out partnership in the gospel through me, and I'm not on my own. Imagine what that's like in in your own heart when maybe the things around you are still fractured and still broken, but you go, the God of the universe has made me whole and is making me whole, and I get to participate with him in a partnership in the gospel. Imagine what happens in our church when the unity that we share is a God-given gift and we treasure it and pursue it. That sounds like a good news kind of church. Imagine what happens in West Central Illinois, Scott County, Morgan County, Green County. Imagine what happens when there is a community of people living seven days a week in the power of the Holy Spirit, living out fellowship and partnership in the gospel. That sounds like a gift to our region. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you don't come to us with a whip screaming, try harder. You come to us and you say, look at my son and be saved. God, I pray that we would treasure and pursue the gifts in Christ that you have given us. God, I pray that we would live out partnership in the gospel in our homes and in our church and in our community. In Jesus' name, amen.